Welcome to Scaling with Soul, formerly The Fifth Palette Almost Killed Me, a show that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at starting and growing a consumer products goods business. I'm your host, Heather K. Terry. I'm a New York City area-based consultant, and I've advised and had key roles in not only my own brands, but with dozens of others as well. My main objective is to help you avoid the many mistakes I've made or have been witness to in my 11 plus years as an entrepreneur. Let's get started. Vincent Biscay is a former commodity derivatives trader with a strong passion in F&B. After spending 10 years between Paris and London and New York, he left finance to pursue an entrepreneurial career and focus on developing brands in the CPG space, leveraging his financial expertise in a different category. Passionate about food and beverage since he was very little, he caught up with a longtime friend who had started a juice business and saw an opportunity to experience the change he was looking for. In 2014, he joined as partner and CFO of Love Grace Incorporated, a New York-based cold-pressed juice company specializing in HPP beverages. In that vertically integrated and fast-evolving startup, Vincent was hands-on in numerous parts of the business, including finance, production, procurement, fulfillment, sales and distribution, B2B, and e-commerce. He did everything. During that period, their private label business took off, and Love Grace is now a leading premium beverage co-packer in the New York Tri-State region in HPP. The facility is USDA certified organic and SQF level two. They make cold-pressed HPP juices, smoothies, soups, cold brew teas, and coffees. After two years, Vincent remained co-owner and advisor to Love Grace to be able to pursue other opportunities. He realized that every company in the consumer packaged goods space faced the same challenges from pre-launch to about $10 million in revenue, and that his recently gained knowledge and experience would be useful to help them face those challenges. He thus founded Step 2 Advisors LLC, a boutique advisory firm for early-stage startups in food and beverage. The company offers three types of services project-based business planning and financial modeling, retained-based fractional C-level shadow executives, so COO and CFO services, seed to Series B fundraising support. In addition, Vincent is an advisor to Uplift Food, a pioneer in prebiotic snacks, Maison Marcel Incorporated, a rosé wine company founded in 2015, as well as Mood 33. LA-based cannabis-infused sparkling beverage company launched in 2018. He sits on the board of Nuno's Creamery, the first Greek yogurt brand in a glass jar using traditional gravity straining techniques with cloth bags. Other clients include Bears Fruit Kombucha, Glow Beverages, Ojai, Nut and Ordinary, Donna Chai, La Durée, Evive Smoothies from Canada, Bitsy's, Ryan Snacks, and more. Vincent is also a partner at Beyond Brands since January of 2019, a conscious consulting agency based in New York City and LA. He became the director of finance of an accelerator program called Beyond SKU, which launched in September of 2019 in New York City. Vincent lives and works in New York City. He holds an an MSc in general engineering from 
Mines Nancy in France. In addition, he attended HEC Business School in Paris and received a master's in finance. We're dealing with a heavy hitter here, so let's get started. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So the listeners just heard a little bit about your experience um, in your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, so I, I, my biggest question when I see somebody's resume like this, and, and you and I have known each other for, for quite a few years, but um, it is a really interesting story, I think, from you because you were in the world of finance and then you entered the world of startups and on top of it, food startups and, and beverage startups, uh, which is not an easy transition. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. On the transition. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It was not um, something easy, that's for sure. And I was not destined to to work in food and beverage either. So it's a little bit um, of the background is that I was a commodity derivatives trader in an investment bank for about 10 years. So I was trading uh, in the financial markets, um, refined products, crude oil, futures, and really complicated instruments. And nothing was um, telling me that I was going to become an entrepreneur and, and join the, the food and beverage industry. So a little bit of luck um, had to happen. First, I uh, decided after a few years that I wanted to do something else, but I did not know what to do. So it was growing on me that I, I should explore other channels um, different from banking. And at the same time, some of my friends had done the switch, started companies and, and left finance. So I had an influence from my close friends on what it looks like on the other side. And it didn't look great. It looked uh, very difficult. Um, um, they were as stressed as I was in the, in the bank. So I didn't see really big differences, um, but it, I was curious. And eventually I decided to make the jump and, and go on a sabbatical. My goal was to take a, a gap year and have the opportunity to, to travel. And I know that it's not something you can necessarily do in, in your life. So I, I was lucky that I could, didn't have kids or a partner. And I thought, okay, let's just, everything is aligning. Let's try to have a break and think about it. As soon as I did this, one of my close friends reached out to me and said, now that you are going to think about what you want to do and that you have free time, can you help me and my partners uh, we have a juice company and it's been a year and a half that it's in the market and it's doing very, very well. We would love to have your, your two cents, especially on the business and the finance side. I said, sure, I can help, but I have no experience and I had really no confidence that I could be helpful. So while I was traveling, I was receiving recurring emails with a few questions about things that I thought were not that difficult, but required uh, maybe, you know, a, a business mindset and, and, and ease with numbers. I've started answering the questions of my friends. They loved it. And I got more questions and then more questions. And after three months, they asked me if I wanted to join them uh, as a partner. <laughs> so that sabbatical was not really a sabbatical. <laughs> no, it was, it was interrupted. But well, you I only said, traveled for three months then. <laughs> yes, and I didn't really even like, it's not like I traveled every week for three months. It was a very, I did maybe 
couple countries and let's see, two countries and, and I was back oh, in New York. But, but I said no to the first um, uh, offer because, mm -hmm. because of that reason, because I thought I had more things to explore um, within myself and also because I didn't know the category. So I started doing research and a couple months later, so two months more, um, I came back to New York. So I did travel a little bit more and, um, and then they continued to insist that they wanted me to join. And I had done a bit more research and thought maybe this is a calling. Maybe this is a sign. Let's just embrace it. And basically I joined, um, shortly after that as a partner and I uh, worked with, uh, this company for, two full years, um, 24, seven, seven days a week, um, growing the brand, um, and the operations. So relentless, like any good set of entrepreneurs, they pursued you until they broke you and brought you in. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Also, it felt like family because I, I, I was very, I'm, I'm still very close with, with that person. And then I, I got to know his cousin and, and we we're very close today. And that, that was, um, five years ago. Um, mm. yeah. So, um, that's how I started. And so, yeah. So were there, I'm sure there were challenges within that though. So when you made the decision to come over and you know, you would, you were on the sabbatical that wasn't really a sabbatical, then you decide that you're going to go ahead and jump in. So then that was really when the transitional part started, right? Like that's when you sort of said, okay, now I'm in this, I've made a commitment to this. So then what was, what was challenging about being there? Because I can't imagine coming from a more traditional world of working in finance that um, it was just smooth sailing. Yes, it has nothing to do. There's nothing similar to working in a large corporation, first of all, and, and, and let alone in a bank and let alone as a trader, which is a very um, lonely job. You don't need any, any colleagues, really. You do your thing. Mm -hmm. And then you enter into a group where it's all about talking, exchanging, sharing problems, um, being vocal and, and fixing things uh, every, every five minutes. Okay. The, the way I approached it was I gave my, first I gave myself time. I did not, and I think that's, a, that's an advice I still uh, give to entrepreneurs today. You, if you set yourself goals, but not realistic um, timeframes, you're going to be stressed out all the time and you're not going to be able to operate in, in a good environment. So the first day I started, I said, I'm doing this for one year. So that's long. That's a long time. So I will just take every day as, they, as it comes and work hard and try to create value and answer, mm -hmm. answer questions and solve issues, like very basic things. But I won't be nervous if after three months I haven't created sales, for example, or I haven't generated opportunities or partnerships or wh whatever it is that they're going to ask me. Also, by the way, it was a blur. What am I supposed to do? I am now a partner of a juice company, but what, what is my job? Um, what, so you, you quickly realize that your job is to do a bit of everything as, as a, the second year, and it was the second year of existence of the company. You, you wear pretty much every hat, even if you want to give yourself a label because of your so, background. So that's funny. And I actually just want, I just want to stop you really quickly there, Vincent, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast you know, for those people who are out there who are entrepreneurs, you know, that's one thing, an entrepreneurial spirit and being an entrepreneur and starting a business, you sort of realize, yes, I am going to wear every single hat. I think where the problem comes in for a lot of founders is when they hire people who kind of don't understand that. 
right? There's a, there's a, a subset of people out there who think like, this is my job and these are the functions of my job. And the bottom line is for those of you out there listening to this that are working within startups, know that everything is your job, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? I, I agree a hundred percent, but it's funny because I think it's, it's two phases. When you're very small, mm-hmm. you need to wear many hats. And when you hire people, they need to understand that there is going to be a little bit of that. But after a few years, you also want to create structure and you want right. to create divisions and delegation. And so it really depends who you hire and when. If you hire someone as first employee, they need to understand it's not going to be um, a structural uh, uh, workspace um, and you're going to have to, to, to do a bit of everything. But if you hire, if, if for example, you're a big group of founders, if you're four founders, you should start having um, your own um, responsibilities. And if you start hiring people, it's to, for the, their specific skill set, they might not have to do so much. So I guess it depends on, on where you're at, at, at the, you know, the stage of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, great. So, the, you know, what's always kind of fascinated me about Love Grace, which was the first brand uh, that you were a part of, is that they were a brand first. And, you know, a few years into the company, they pivoted to becoming a co-manufacturer. And, you know, I've had a few companies come across my desk uh, where this has happened too, where companies have gone into manufacturing and then they decide, wow, there's a real opportunity here to produce for other companies. And I want to know a little bit about what that was like for you all. What was that decision like? Was it, I would imagine for the founders, it was a pretty emotional decision, you know, to say, okay, we have a brand, but we're also going to do this. And then when this starts working and your brand is not as much at the forefront, you know, what's that like? It's a, it's a very good question. I don't think my answer will be general. It will just be our example, what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's one way to, to, to pivot necessarily. We had a dream to be um, a top three cold press juice and smoothie company in the US. So the ambition was to be like Blueprint was when we launched mm-hmm. and, uh, and just following their, in their footsteps. And once we realized what it took to do that uh, from connections, capital, and also um, uh, we realized it was a race and it was when everybody woke up in beverage and started creating functional beverages and did raise a lot of money faster than us since we didn't have those connections, it was difficult. We were just doing very well in our own backyard, but it was very limited. I think in the first, so I joined after a year and a half, two years, and in the, in the, in the two years I was there, we went from 300 accounts to 1,000. We got um, Whole Foods Regional, and we, and we had some, you know, something going on seven figure sales it was it was it was looking good but the more we were growing the more we were spending money to grow and to support and so um, we at the same time had one opportunity to do private label that opportunity we we took it on board because love grace was self-manufacturing their juices so it's again very specific to not all startups own their production so if you are in that case then you are always tempted to fill your lines if they're not working at capacity, which usually they're not at the beginning, and you want to create some cash flow. So there's the very high temptation of making products for others. In general, 
I advise not to do it because it depends how it's going to dilute your brand. It, it depends on a lot of factors, but um, you don't want half of your business to become private label business. And suddenly when your retail and your brand takes off, you struggle to, to meet the capacity and you can't turn off the private label business either. So we were not um, in a position where we could say no to that opportunity for cash flow reasons. And so we said yes. Then we realized it was profitable and it was not easy, but it was certainly not requiring the same marketing dollars, if, if, if any at all, just relationship management and making a good product. So when we got into a cash crunch because the retail business was taking off, but also competition was taking shelf space and, and just beating us um, uh, on the race, we started thinking that this might be a business if we focus on high quality clients. And we basically had to make that decision. So it, I, I want to say that it was not, we didn't wake up one morning and say, our new strategy is... Mm -hmm to pivot into co-manufacturing. It was because we had a couple of options to do that or to shut down uh, or to raise capital. Mm -hmm. And we did not raise capital in, on time. So we could do another whole uh, conversation on funding, fund, fundraising at the right time. <laughs> but so I guess from, from an issue and from something that was fairly tra tragic um, with, with uh, a lot of pressure on, on what are we doing with the business came a solution that we embraced and we turned the company around and it worked. It worked since to now today we are in our um, third year uh, as a, as a co-packer and the, the business has grown threefold since then. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, I was just, it's funny. I was just having a conversation with an entrepreneur today about, you know, what sword you die on as a, as a founder and pivots, I think, are big pivots like this are some of the hardest things I think that entrepreneurs go through because you see a vision so clearly, right? You have this dream that is so clear and suddenly an opportunity comes by or in your case, maybe something that was necessary, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for the survival of the business. But, but sometimes those opportunities come up and they work. And you suddenly have to change your dream. It's sort of, sort of like when you're a kid and you think you're going to do one thing, right? And Absolutely. then you get to being an adult and you it's find very, out <laughs> like you're going to do something else, right? <laughs> it's very difficult. It, and and it, it was for, it took a, I don't know how many months or maybe we have to count in years, the transition um, psychologically. The mm. reason why maybe it was, possible for us to do that is that the brand is not dead. The brand uh, mm -hmm. lives uh, yeah. through, through Instagram, uh, has 25 or 26,000 followers, and there are diehard fans that um, have been, have been purchasing the product for years, for seven, eight years online. And we also have some independent stores and, and smaller retailers that order and just get delivered by a FedEx. So we kept a little bit of that. Maybe it's 10% of our business. It's not, it's not insignificant, but it exists and it's dormant, but it's working. And we have interactions with, with people that say that our cleanse is the best in the, in the country, that it's balanced in terms of fiber, nutrients, and sugar, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we keep this on. And eventually, you know, if we want to make a focus on e-commerce because, you know, it's growing um, tremendously, we could. 
but our, our, our facility now, which is a, um, a 12,000 square foot facility, has, uh, we we, we're happy to employ more and more workers. We have, I think, 15 or 20 employees. Uh, we have an automated line now, and we have also a fulfillment center. We, we ship online, and we could potentially also uh, explore other avenues there. So it, it became exciting. We got new goals through the success of the transition, um, but we actually kept the brand uh, on the side. Uh, so uh, you can check it out on, on, on Instagram. It's Love Grace Juice, but, but that's maybe why it has been an easier transition than it would have been if we had shut down completely the uh, CPG piece. Right. Well, look, I mean, the story of Love Grace and how you guys, you know, did really a 180 to some degree um, is, is pretty fascinating. And one that, you know, for those, those listeners out there that are manufacturing for themselves, there is something to learn there. If, you know, you're, if the brand isn't, isn't working exactly how you want it to, and not because a brand doesn't work. So I, I hope everybody hears that, that it's not that this brand wasn't working. It's just that to compete in consumer packaged goods, it requires a tremendous amount of money, right? To be competitive on the shelf, it requires a tremendous amount of money. And if you're not able to raise that money, sometimes you have to get really, really creative, right? That's correct. We were not discontinued uh, from any retailer. Right. Um, just at, at the very, very end, at the tail end, uh, Whole Foods was asking for you know the regular promotions and demos. And we, mm -hmm. at one point, we couldn't afford them. And so they said, uh, you know, we have some other brands that can and... Uh, we really like what you're doing, but we're going to have to swap you if you can't. And so we just said, mm. actually, we can't. And so they, so it wasn't a common agreement almost. Um, but all the other, all, all the other retailers, the, the the product was doing okay and moving. But at one point, you have to to make a decision: do you keep yeah. your distributor with high volume or not? And and so uh, the the for me, the credit goes to to uh, two of my partners, Jake and Andrew, that believed in that um, in that transition, and they took on. Um, I mean, they, they took that transition on their shoulders because as you can imagine, if you're in a cash crunch and you need to rebuild, there's no, you're still no money to, to pay yourself. Uh, that, that's, right. it's, the, it's the most dire situation possible. And honestly, in, in less than a year, they turned it over. Um, and uh, I, I personally started Step2 Advisors at that time to kind of uh, remove some of the, of the uh, payroll weight, if you would, um, mm -hmm. while the... Uh, turnaround was happening and I found another channel and another way to create value for for myself and for the ecosystem. It's amazing. It's a great story and certainly too um your two partners had a lot of um you know just it's it like I said it's hard. They had a lot of foresight to see okay there's another way here in order to survive and to order to thrive as business owners. Um okay, I want to change course here for a second because um, you know, Vincent and I uh, do a lot of work together at Beyond Brands, and uh, I think some very fulfilling work. And we do, you know, we we do a lot of different things there. But we see a lot of different brands um, from our side of the table. And we've been, you and I both have had brands. Um, we've both worked for brands. We've both been partners in brands. Uh, I, you know, there's a lot of challenges for brands, and I think whatever um, lens you're looking through you see the challenges pretty, pretty clearly as, as uh, you know, for those of us that have been in this industry for a while, you're in, you're on the financial, financial side of things. And which I think can be one of the hardest um, parts for entrepreneurs. 
So what do you see as the most common mistake on the financial side for young brands? It's a good question. I, th I think in the simplest answer is oversight, I think. In other words, you, you don't, if you're not um, savvy in finance as an entrepreneur, then you're probably not going to take care of it or, or think about it too much. You're going to focus on everything else. If you're the creative, you're going to focus on your branding, on your uh, story, and on being the, 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 the voice and the face of the company. If you're an ops person, you're going to create the best product, formulation, and execute it. And if you're sales, you're going to sell it. But if no one in your team is finance, you're just going to do things and hope that the bank account goes up while you continue to spend money and that you know the, the difference is positive, basically, in between what you're earning and what you're spending. But mm -hmm. the reality is that it's, it's, it's not scalable. And very quickly, you are going to be in, in a very uh, complicated situation if you don't have reporting, access to reports, to data, and if you just don't have visibility uh, a month, from a month to another. And, and you're not going to go very far. So I think the, the, the number one issue is, is oversight. And it's not, um, it's not necessarily done on purpose. It's just if you don't like something, you usually don't, don't go there first, right? Yeah, there's an aversion to it, right? Yeah, so, so that's, that's what I think um, is the main issue. Um, and again, it, it's applicable to, to, to startups where they just don't have a finance background. Then if you take companies where people are okay with numbers and, and they start doing things on Excel or maybe, maybe potentially they, they, they start a, a, to, to do their own bookkeeping on maybe QuickBooks Online or some other softwares, uh, you might get quickly, um, if, you're, if your business is fairly successful, you, you, will, be, um, you will be kind of drowning in, 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 in that because you want to run your business and you, you won't have the time to do a good job in something that is not your your background. Um, so, so I think finding professionals around you and, and, and freelancers that can actually take that load out, uh, you know, off of you is very important, but it's not, it's not the first um, think, uh, thing you think about when you, when you run a business, you, you don't think about, I need a bookkeeper for two hours a, a week because two hours a week is nothing. You probably can do it yourself. At the end of the day, you don't create a budget. You don't have vision. You don't have projections and, and you end up, just flying it, winging it. So it's, it's a, that, that's the biggest danger in my opinion. Yeah, and I see this a lot. Um, in fact, it's probably the number one thing I see from uh, clients, private clients who come to me, uh, which is, when, in my opinion, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think you'll agree with me. Um, always nice to have a finance person on the other side of the table agreeing with you. But um, you know, in my opinion, it's one of the biggest misses uh, for young brands, uh, incubating brands, right? Ideation, uh, brands that are at, at an ideation phase. I see a lot of companies come to me, a lot of founders come to me who say, okay, Heather, here I am. I'm ready. Heather, I'm ready. I'm ready to go kick ass and take names. I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to get into Whole Foods. I'm ready to get to Costco. I'm like, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. And then I say to them, I ask them for two things and you know what they are, it's, a, it's their business plan and their financial model. And sometimes, right, probably about 60% of the time, I would say they have a business plan. Not necessarily a super well-executed business plan, but at least they have one, right? Mm -hmm. And the second thing I ask for is that financial model of almost which no one has. And I look at them and I say, well, okay, so you don't have a, 
a financial model, which is basically your budget, um, your budget, your projections, how are you operating a company? And they look at me very quizzically, or there's a long silence on the other end of the phone. And one of the biggest answers I get is that they say, well, I just don't know how to do that. So I didn't do it. I just yeah. am using a credit card and I have a bank account. And sometimes I'm using my personal credit card, which is the worst, right? You, you can't do that kind of stuff, but that, that's a topic <laughs> for another day. But you know, right. they've, they've, they've mixed finances. They've begged and borrowed um, from whoever they can. They are flying. And when, when I see that, Vincent, I say to all these entrepreneurs, you are flying blind. You are flying without a net. You have no idea, right? Yep, that's exactly it. And month over month, what the spend is and the, and the damage you could be potentially doing to a great idea or a great product. It's true. It's true. The, the thing is that in very, um, most, of the, most of the time it's going to fail, but it's true that sometimes you have this friend or, or, or this company that actually started this way. Uh, not looking uh, left and right, just going straight. And because the product was great and because the consumer was behind it, it actually worked. And then everything uh, was a great story after that. And they found financing and everything worked out. But that is 1% or 5% of the companies that that can afford to to just go blind a little bit on the finances at the beginning and just get lucky right away, get a big account or or just get get the support or the trend is there, whatever it may be. In the other 85 or 90% of the of the time of the cases, it's not the way it works. It, you need to have that. Um, I mean, obviously we're a bit biased because we know that you have that. And so we're having this conversation, the two of us, but for the people listening, it's, it doesn't need to be complicated. That's, that's also one of the biggest misconceptions is that a financial model sounds like, and you must have seen some uh, with 20 tabs on Excel and a lot of different things but it doesn't need to be that way. It's just the word that's financial model. Those two words together just mean that you have some idea of where your numbers are going to go and what they should look like. It doesn't need to be five years. It doesn't need to be very complex. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really maybe just a budget is a better word um, because a budget, a budget is the future too. It's just more, a bit more short term. And you should have that the same way you have one sometimes for your personal um, finances. So I think... When the founders come to you and they have a business plan, but no financial model, it's true that right away it's a red flag because if they achieve all the things they want to achieve or the, uh, from, from the sales strategy point of view or marketing, it requires capital and you just can't wait and figure it out last minute when it just happens. You need to know ahead of time what you're getting into. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, would I be correct when I say, and I say this all the time, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I think when you don't have a financial model, when you don't have that budget, at least a budget in an Excel spreadsheet, right? I really think you take away your power as a business owner. I think that you, you completely, you completely shoot yourself in the foot. You, you because, because there is no path forward when the bank account gets to zero. Oh, you're right. You're right. It looks, it looks like you thought, you thought of everything, but you're missing something that's very, very important. Now, it depends who you talk to. You know, some founders are, are self-sufficient for a while. And, um, and sometimes you meet um, people that have been doing this for three, four years and with, with pretty good or relative success. But so it also depends um, what you're trying to achieve. The stage of your company is very important. Of course, if you could start right away with, um, you know, some 
com comfort with numbers and, and create a little bit of, of a roadmap for you, that's great. Um, if you haven't done so in the beginning, but then realize now I need it because my business is taking off or my plan is, is pretty big and I'm going to need some dollars to support it. Um, now that that's when you have to do it. There's never, it's never too late, but well, it's never too late. And before you engage into that, that phase where you know it's going to require capital. So, yeah, because I, I also think it's a little bit scary. You know, one of the big things when I put a company on to a model or a budget that happens, um, and you've probably seen this too, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but one of the biggest things I think that happens when somebody has been flying blind for a while, and then they move to a model or they move to a budget, right? opportunities are constantly coming to brands and as founders and i've certainly been uh i have i have committed this crime so i want to i'm putting my both the hands up and i'm saying i have also committed this crime as a young founder opportunities come your way and you want to say yes to everything but when you have a budget right you can't say yes to everything because you suddenly understand where the money is going and what you need to operate in other places, right? So I yeah. get a lot of founders uh, who come to me who maybe have a budget and they're trying to twist themselves into a pretzel. And I always go back to, okay, first of all, if you have a model, look at your budget, look at where you can take from, look at where you can spend a little less money if you really feel like this opportunity is something that you want to do. So there's always a way to take from your budget, right? And to reorganize mm -hmm. and um, reprioritize, right? But for those people who don't have a budget, and then I say to them, you need to do a cost analysis. You need to take a look at what, what the pros, cons, what the cost of doing this opportunity are, what, how much money you're going to need to produce the inventory for the opportunity, how much, you know, I love the one, I get this one all the time, pop-ups. Like pop-ups are mm -hmm. like one that comes to me all the time from founders. Oh, they just asked me to do this pop-up. It's going to cost $5,000. It's going to go on for three weeks, I have to have somebody behind the table right. for three full weeks. I have to produce this much inventory. And you start saying, and they're like, but it's going to be great. And I'm going to get so much exposure. Right. Correct. And then I say to them, okay, well, how much is, you know, how much the table is going to cost? How much is the person going to cost? And if the person uh, bails on you, then you have to show up. So are you flexible the next three weeks? Right. Cause time is money. Money is time. So <clears throat> you know, yep. I, I see a lot of this happening. And so I'm just, I'm curious from you, for, for those people out there who are flying blind, right? Especially for those individuals, what in that budget that you're saying like, hey, just at least create a budget, what are just like the top five things that should be in that thing? Or is there a resource that they can go to, to, to figure out how to put together a really simple budget? I mean, I know it sounds really simple to you and I, but for some people, you know, bank money, looking at my bank account. Like there are mm -hmm. people out there who are not looking at their bank account, right? And they're not managing their money. They're not paying their credit card bills. They're letting them pile up. What would be like the first step or resource or five things they should remember in trying to sort of get themselves out of this mess? It's a good question. I think it starts with um, analyzing what you're doing right now. So if, if it's complicated to project, then Start with what are you spending today that you're spending every month? So your fixed cost, I guess, as, as, as we would call them. Um, if you have an office or a production space, you have rent. So you know you need to pay rent. You need to make rent every month. So you write that um, on, on a piece of paper, on Excel, every month you write that. You continue to look at your fixed cost 
are you paying yourself a little something? Do you have someone to help you? Um, you write all these costs. Do you, do you pay for your, your website maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. Once you have the fixed cost, then you have to think about the variable costs. If you know what, th this is when it becomes, I think this is the best method and it's not that, that difficult. You know what you have coming in and out season seasonally. For example, an event that you like to do where you're allowed to sell and it was a great success last year and you're going to do it again this year. So you need to plan ahead. You just mentioned inventory. That's very important. You want to give out samples and you also want to produce. That's the number one source of, of cash crunch when you're not funded is mm -hmm. I need to buy more inventory to go into those stores and place my product. But the upfront cost, whether it's $5,000 or $50,000, it doesn't matter. It's usually going to impact your, your bank account. So if you know that's coming, just put that in the month where you think you need it. And so that's how you start building your budget in, in, a, in an easy way. And you see, I just mentioned maybe five, six, 10 items. Um, every company has, has some, some differences. Some people have staff, some people don't. But because you're already in business, you can start there. It's easy to look back into your expenses and, and you know what you're spending every month. So you start there and then you start projecting a couple months out. And if you can continue to do that exercise and project even further, um, the second part that's a little bit more difficult is to think, how am, I, how am I going to create sales? How can I guess what my sales are going to be? So that's just another, another page of, of um, another white page where you, you look at what you're selling today in how many doors. And if you have um, an ambition to increase the doors by X amount, then you, you are fairly confident your sales are going to increase by X amount. So I would really just go step by step bucket by bucket so that it doesn't feel overwhelming. Um, you can actually do these things separately before you just add them together to look at what, it, what is the, the bottom line at the end of each month. That's great. Um, I feel like we need to go create like an infographic for everybody to see on the website after this podcast is over. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Um, I love that. Um, well, Vincent, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and give us your story and give us your suggestions and your opinions. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. And I'm happy to, um, to um, answer any questions you may get after the, the, the podcast is live. If there's people um, that um, are wondering how to do things and that they're exactly at that stage that you described, just let me know. All right. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. I mean, can you all believe that interview? He's so amazing. I work with him pretty much every single day, and I am constantly blown away with how a finance person can just completely change your business. And just one other quick little story. I was I was on um, the phone with an entrepreneur who's considering working with me. And, you know, I, I, this happens all the time. And I tell this story because I want everyone to really hear this, you know, I get a lot of businesses that come to me and say, Oh, Heather, I want your help. I want this. I need that. And my first question, every single time when I get on the phone to do an intro call or a, a, a first, you know, initial interview with a client is that I ask if they have a biz, if they have a business plan and if they have a financial model and 98% of the time they do not. And it's actually quite shocking because We'll do some episodes on this and we'll do some training and get some resources out there for you all. But without a business plan, you're flying without a roadmap. You you have no, you're flying blind. 
You're just, you have no idea where you're going next. You have no thought out process for a period of time. And with a financial model, it's the same thing. When you don't understand what's in your bank account, how much money you need, how much money you need to raise, it's just, it's not going to go anywhere. So really, really take this episode to heart and take everything that Vincent said to heart about creating those models and having really smart financial people around you. Remember, Scaling with Soul comes out on Tuesday mornings. For more startup business insights, sign up for my newsletter at heatherkterry.com or buy my book, From Broadway to Wall Street, Cautionary Tales of an Unlikely Entrepreneur, which is available on Amazon. If you have an idea or question for the podcast, go over to anchor.fm or download the Anchor app where this podcast is hosted or direct message me on Instagram at heatherkterry. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on iTunes. It's really important. We need as many listeners as we can get. If you'd like to work with me directly, go over to the website and click on the offerings tab and you can set up time with me from there. Scaling with Soul is executive produced by Lauren Appelt and all visual elements are created by Radhika Maheshwari, Casey Alvarez, and the Alvarez Branding Company. Now, get out there and do something to move your business forward. Till next time. Thank you.